Strikes, No Balls, Stories of the Softball Sisterhood. A podcast celebrating the lives of some of the amazing women in South Australian softball. We're your hosts, Thunder and Fisty. And And we we love softball. Welcome Terry Lamarange to the podcast. Thank you. Softball legend. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's get started with some questions. First question for you, Terry. When and why did you start playing softball? I started when I was nine at a place in Granada Hills. So Granada Hills is a little suburb of Los Angeles, about probably 20 k's out of LA. Um, at a little park called Pettit Park in Granada Hills, California. And I started playing there probably because I played soccer at that park from when I was five. And that park had four softball diamonds, sort of very traditional um, American baseball parks or local parks usually have two to four softball baseball diamonds and then soccer fields and other things in the middle. So I think I started because we were always down there all the time. My parents must have seen softball starting. And a lot of the girls that I played soccer with also played softball. So... So it's an easy transition. Was softball winter, no, softball summer and soccer winter as yep. well? Yep. So I basically went to the same park all year round, but just changed sports halfway through. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And in terms of your junior playing days, did you play much in high school or tra- was that a travel ball team that you were playing for? Or was- when I started, so you just played at your local park probably until, oh, I did play a travel ball team, the Shilohs in... Southern California when I was in high school and then of course high school ball in America is very big um, you train as your last class of every day and then for an hour hour and a half after school every day and then usually two matches a week um, and then during summer you play usually a summer ball team mm-hmm. that play tournaments mostly mm-hmm. and uh, yeah just a local league and then it wasn't really in America it wasn't really are you going to go to college it was really where are you going to go to college and again because I played sport I you know I often look back and go would I have gone to university if I hadn't played sport it's hard to know I think I would have but it was just the natural progression and I was I was sort of I really close with my family so we all when I say I was at the park every Saturday my mom coached soccer my dad refereed and coached soccer i'm the oldest of four my brother played soccer and baseball and my two younger sisters played soccer and softball so we basically were there all the time and it was just a natural transition to stay close to home i love my family and i loved them then and so it was northridge cal state northridge was i could cycle to school So instead of, and I guess soccer was probably my first love, but at the time when I was at uni, I finished in 1985. There weren't a lot of soccer scholarships going around. If I wanted to play soccer, I would have had to go probably East Coast to play. Um, So softball was easy. If you had a choice? I would have played soccer. Right, okay. Softball, I find hard. I wasn't a natural softballer. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I don't find it comes easy. It's not natural for me. I have to work really hard to just be, you know, okay. Soccer was very natural. Yeah, okay. I Yeah, I would have loved to have played 
if that if I could do one thing again in my life, I would play soccer in college. And we wouldn't be having this conversation no. now. Not you have to change the title of your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it took us a long time to come up with. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what position did you play mm. like in your junior days in college days? Uh, so I can remember starting when I was nine in right field, the usual please don't hit it to her player. <laughs> um, We've all been that player. <laughs> yeah, my dad taught me to catch fly balls out in the front yard, knocked that tooth out mm. when, I, when I was nine. Um, so I started in right field and then gradually got better as you do when you practice and then started playing third and catching. So I probably played third base and catcher the most. In high school, I was really blessed. I, the high school I went to, Granada Hills High School, we ended up being city champs two of the three years that I was there. Um, so we had really good players and I moved to second base and was thrilled that I started at second base and just remember working so, so hard because I think second base is, I always think second base is the hardest mm. position in terms of thinking and yep. physically being everywhere so it was a total transition thirds easy you get it or you don't um so yeah played second base in high school and then went to catch in my senior year in college uh no in college then i went to cal state northridge and i played right field for four years four hmm. i was gonna say four god awful years but no <laughs> i loved playing there but i didn't necessarily love right field <laughs> well that's another question what did you enjoy most about your college career and your college playing days um, I would say that Cal State Northridge and the girls I played with have had probably one of the biggest influences on my life. I, every, at the end of every year, I would sit down during summer and weigh the pros and cons of returning the next year. And the list of not returning was huge. And the list of returning always just featured my friends. Wow. Um, and that's no exaggeration because, um, I went there and our head coach, Gary Torgerson, he is now in the National Hall of Fame as a coach. He coached us to three national championships while I was there and another one or two after I left. He was an ex-football coach and I don't know the story of how he moved from our football program to our softball program, but he had no, <laughs> he had no knowledge of softball other than his young daughter played wow. softball. And by all accounts, his first year, he spent a lot of time learning, but what he brought from football was a, a methodical approach to training. So I would say, and I could spend ages talking about his influence on me as a player and me as a coach. He's probably been the greatest influence on me as a coach because of the way he structured trainings and the minute detail we went into over and over and over again so you know it's not like here we had so you get a scholarship they own you you go to class in the morning and basically from 12 o'clock to five o'clock you're theirs so we were training four to five hours a day and playing as you know Mel two you know maybe two double headers a week and tournaments sometimes weekends um and every minute of a four-hour training he had programmed he would literally wow. say, come on, ladies, we're 30 minutes into warming up. We're 30 minutes into warm-up time if we hadn't started our run. He had every minute planned of four hours for every position. Wow. So he went from not knowing anything about softball to in his second, third year, coaching us to the first national championship for our school. 
That's impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, he was blessed. He had a good assistant coach in Debbie Ching and um, some phenomenal players. But, yeah, truly extraordinary. And it was just yeah. his, like, re- repetition, repetition, repetition. Mm-hmm. I, I think if if I practiced nine to three, so I was right fielder. Um, for those that aren't softball people, the positions are, you know, pitchers one. So I was in right field. That's position nine. If I get an out nine to three, which is the first baseman, we would have practiced nine to threes. I probably would have thrown 2,000 (laughs) during my training years. And I probably had two opportunities in four years of university (laughs) to throw nine to three. And I don't think I got one. Yeah. (laughs) But I was prepared. You were ready for it. Yeah. (laughs) You were ready. You would have nailed it if you had more. I probably would have. But as my pitcher, who was an All-American and phenomenal and responsible for so much of our national championship wins, she always said, I wouldn't dare pitch outside so they could hit to you. It was very harsh. Oh, no, those are the people I wanted to return to. Every year. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? What was it like winning a national championship? Uh, well, multiple, sorry. Well, my freshman year, it was very unexpected. So um, we went to nationals in those days, and it was Division Two at that time. We went to nationals, and it was only four teams went to nationals, and we were ranked fourth. And we went to the pre-tournament dinner, and they named the All-Americans and they read out the batting averages of the teams that were participating. And, you know, we went up in, in the order that we were ranked and their batting averages were like, you know, 350. And I think our team batting average was like 189. And and I remember just thinking, we didn't talk a lot about it, but I remember thinking, I think we're pretty good, you know, but okay. So we go the first game and we played, I think it was um, the number one seed and we killed them. And our pitcher owned them. They didn't touch her. And she made second team All-American her freshman year. And I kept thinking, how has she only made, if she's only made second team All-American because I thought she was phenomenal. Um, these other ones must be extraordinary. But we, you know, we basically won every game and won the national championship. And it was probably harder to get out of regionals than it was to win the national championship. Because yeah. a lot of the teams on the West Coast of the U.S. at that stage were very strong so was it everything just fell into place at the right time or i can honestly say it was exactly what we had trained every situation before you guys came over today i was looking for my playbook and i think mel you've seen my playbook from northridge so aside from training four hours a day every day and, and everything else during hell week which went for two weeks it was eight hours a day, and during lunch, we sat together and ate our lunch, and we went through our playbook. And our playbook was about two, one and a half to two centimeters thick, and it went through every scenario. So it went through all of our signals, but it went through every scenario. So page one might be nobody on, nobody out, hit to left field. And you had to write, so you had to fill out every page, and you had to write what you would do if you were the batter. If there were runners in the scenario, you had to do what you would do with the runner, and then you'd have to say what you would do for your position. And if you played multiple positions, you had to say what you would do for both positions. So every single play that could possibly happen, we would wow. talk through. <laughs> so when you say they go to nationals, did it seem like, wow, we got a lucky break there, or we we just did what we had mm-hmm. trained just to business, do. It business as usual. Yeah, yeah, it didn't seem like 
I don't know, it didn't seem any different than anything we trained every day for. Mm-hmm. And then you win the first one, and then it's sort of an expectation that you... And I was very, like, I came in with a freshman class. There were five of us, four of which went through together, including our pitcher. Um, and, yeah, she was never second-team All-American after that. She was always first-team All-American, and she was phenomenal. Who um, was that? Kathy Slayton. And, I mean, Kat was invited to pitch for Team USA, but she was getting married and wanted to have kids. But yeah, she was extraordinary. So I'll get on to the next part then, your transition from college and yep. living in America yep. to moving out here to Australia. When? How did that come about? When did it come about? Um, I'd finished uni, so I changed my major in my senior year, so I took an extra year to finish my degree and I played soccer my last year at the uni, which was lovely. They had a soccer team by that stage. Um, and then... Uh, a close friend of mine, Janet Pineau, she played for UCLA. So when I went to Cal State Northridge, she went off to UCLA and played there for four years. And she rang me out of the blue and just said, I'm thinking of writing to the Australian national coach and the New Zealand national coach. Do you want to come with me and just go play ball? And I had decided I was never going to play softball again. I was done with softball. <laughs> I got my degree. And I was like, oh, well, the chance to see Australia or New Zealand, that would be nice. It's not going to happen. But all right. So Janet and I wrote, hand wrote these little le- lovely letters. <laughs> and we wrote to the New Zealand coach. I can't remember who that was at the time. How did you even get contact details? Janet did all that. I, okay. did, I did nothing. <laughs> um, and we wrote to Janet sent off the letters. And Nancy Whittingham was the Australian coach at the time. And she also happened to be the coach at West Horn Softball Club at the time. So we wrote and we got, I can't even remember, Janet would remember if we got a call or a, a letter back from Nancy. And it turned out that Nancy was coming out to California on holidays with Tracy Thompson and her mom, Gloria. Oh, wow. Um, and we met them at Universal Studios and had lunch at Universal Studios. And I still remember Janet and I going up the freeway and we had our, we put our gloves in the car thinking, I don't know where at Universal Studios we're going to try out. <laughs> and we had lunch and we didn't get our gloves out. And I guess they figured, I mean, I wrote Janet's coattails. You know, Cal State Northridge isn't exactly a well-known school, but UCLA, everybody knows UCLA. So they probably figured if one of them played at UCLA, yeah. Hopefully the other one's not a nufty. And <laughs> so I remember driving down the hill to going home and saying to Janet, are we going to Australia? And she goes, I think we are going to Australia. So we finished summer there and came out in, I want to say September of 87. And for six months. And I remember flying with Janet, it's the furthest I'd flown, and saying, if there's no one there to meet us, I'm just going to sit down on the floor, I'll cry, and then I'm going to get on the next plane back. And we arrived, and about 20-plus people from the West Horn Softball Club were there to meet us at the airport. And then we went back to the house where Janet and I would be living while we were here, to Trudy Wright's house, and her mother Margaret, and they had a barbecue for us. Oh, and it was just lovely. And I thought, welcome. oh, well, we, I don't have to sit down and cry. <laughs> And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yet. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, just a lovely welcome. And so we did West Torrens pay for you to come out? No, like, we paid our own way. 
and they gave us accommodation. So a member of the club, um, Trudy's mum, Margaret, was I think the secretary or the treasurer of West Torrens at the time. And they had a spare bedroom and agreed to house us. Um, we got jobs while we were here. Right. My first job was, I have to get this right, a Target checkout chick at Fulham Gardens. <laughs> Perfect. That wouldn't have been a sentence she said when you first made here with you. I'm, check a, out, I'm check. a Target checkout chick. No, I would not have. A cashier. A cashier. <laughs> and so did you go back home after that six months? Obviously, you've ended up staying in Australia since 1987. How, how and why did you stay? So interestingly, when we arrived, they had never mentioned coaching before. And I still remember this as clear as anything. They asked, the club asked us if we would coach a junior team each. And we agreed because we felt obligated. And I remember pacing up and down in the bedroom that Janet and I shared and going, oh my God, we have to coach. You know how many hours that's going to take out of my week? I think I calculated it was going to be like four hours out of my week. It was going to take. And I had Between never... that and Target. Oh, how was I going to fit Rough. my life in? Um, and... As often happens, it was the best thing I ever did. I coached West Horns under-15s. We won the premiership that year with some fantastic young young talent. Um, Janet coached under-13s. I coached under-15s. And we played off against Jim Spooner's Glenelg team in the grand final. And I adored every second of coaching. I just loved it. Anyways, Janet... Um, and I returned home as we had planned. Janet got engaged while we were here. We went back. Janet got married. I had no intention of returning. And then two players from West Torrens, Melinda Stocks and Belinda Thomas, were part of an Australian traveling team that came over. And so they came and stayed with us after their tour and said, why don't you come for another season? And I thought, if I could coach again, I'll do that. So I asked and... Um, the club said, yep, come back. And I thought I'll come for two seasons because it's expensive going every six yeah. months. So I booked, I think I got an 18-month visa or whatever it was. And when I came out the first time, Greg Bolton, who went on to be the chairman of Port Powers Board, he I coached his daughters. And so he said, if you ever come back and you need a job, let me know. And he got me a job at IPEC where he was also the general manager. And... Um, so, yeah, I came back, I had a job, and kept coaching at West Torrance. What grade did you coach? Did you coach under 15s again? I think I, did, I think I did 15s again, then moved to 17s the following year, if my memory serves me correctly. Can you remember any of the juniors you coached? Oh, God, yeah. Who were they? Uh, in my first team, the ones that sort of went on to play, so Rachel Robertson was our starting pitcher. Mm -hmm. Benita Wright was our catcher. I had the two James girls, Simone and Kirsten. I had Renee Bent. I don't know if you remember Renee. Janet coached uh, Karen Huppets. Oh, lucky team. Janet. Yeah, she had <laughs> Karen Huppets in her first team. So, yeah, we. I think I ended up with... That's why Janet didn't come back. Yeah, that's why. Right. <laughs> that the Thanks, Huppy. Yeah, Draw why. the conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the UCLA player didn't come back. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Huppy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, and then, I, like, I had four. Four of those girls were in the state team in the under-16s, so they were very, very good. But I learned, and 
I just applied what I had learned from Gary Torgerson in terms of train the simple skills over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, softball's a pretty simple game. It's pretty structured. The only thing you don't know is if the person's going to hit it where they're going to hit it or. But just train the simple things over and over. So before doing this coaching or being made to coach, um, <laughs> did you have any aspirations to coach at that point? No, none. Wow, okay. I had coached soccer in America. So I'd coached junior soccer. I'd never coached softball. So no, no aspirations whatsoever. Right. And so that created the love of coaching and mm. that's where you went further. So you st- were still playing here though. How many years did you play here? Too many is the answer. <laughs> um, and in fact, Mel, you're responsible for extending my career by numerous years. Um, <laughs> I was ready to quit. Like I said, when I finished uni, I didn't care if I ever played. So I didn't play that whole extra year of study I did. I didn't play softball at all. Um I really loved coming to West Torrance because I got to play center field, which was something new for me, and I loved it. So for me, it was novel and it was new, and I played with fantastic outfielders, and we thought we were the bee's knees. We thought, you know, we were the Iron Curtain and nothing could penetrate <laughs> the Iron Curtain. So I was very blessed to play with Sarah Wolford and Kathy Cotton and people that I really respected and it was fun. So I kept playing and my body held up. I was probably ready to retire when a young third baseman was coming up by the name of Mel McGee. Very talented junior who I'd had the fortune of having in sassy squads when that started. And I was ready thinking, okay, my body's ready to retire. Mel's coming up. She can play third. By this time I'd moved to the I was going to say, I was not replacing you with center field. You were not. <laughs> by this time I'd gotten slower. And uh, so I came into the infield and... The year that I thought I would retire, Mel got a scholarship to the University of Hawaii and extended my career by another four years, I think it was. But if it had just been playing, I wouldn't have returned to play, I don't think. Right. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, that that the coaching was Mm. a draw card. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. So when did you start coaching the A grade? I think if I go back so... I can't remember when I started coaching state, but I knew that I really liked coaching the juniors. They were like um, raw little gems to sort of polish and I loved it. And so I put my hand up to coach under 16 state and was fortunate to be appointed assistant coach to Dick Coombe for two years in under 16s. And I learned a lot about how the state program worked and nationals and all that from Dick and tried to just compliment him with I used to have Terry's Terry's tidbits at the end of every training and I tried to pick something that I thought we didn't know or we weren't doing or whatever it was and I tried to insert that and then I think I started coaching state as a head coach before I started coaching West Torrens A grade right and so I think I was You'd think my memory would be better. I can't remember if I coached. I think I coached under 19 state as a head coach. Mm -hmm. So I went from under 16 assistant coach, under 16 assistant coach, to under 19 head coach, I think is what I did. And my transition to being the A-grade coach was purely out of... Dick had been our coach. So I'd I'd played against Dick when he coached at Glenelg. Then he came across to West Torrens and coached us. And I felt as a player... 
And as a coach, I wanted to coach A grade and mm -hmm. I loved West Torrens, so I couldn't see myself going mm. elsewhere. And I remember going to Dick and saying, I'm going to apply to coach the A grade. It's not against you. It's I want to coach A grade yeah. and I don't want to leave the club, but it's not personal. Mm. And I got appointed as the head coach and I, the part of me that, valued dick and didn't want it to be personal was really sad because he left us and he went to Sturt. Right. Um, and I mean, he was always very professional and never said anything, but I always felt mm. bad about that because it would have been good to have him yeah. stay, but I understood he, he too wanted to coach a great. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was just an aspiration to coach the team that I was mm. playing in and to not leave the club that yeah. had brought me out here. Yeah. yeah. So how many years did you coach them? That's a good question. I have no idea. Mm, mm. I couldn't tell you. And it's funny because when um, you guys asked if I would do this and I started reflecting, I can't recall premierships that we've won. Like when I think, what do I remember? I remember moments. I remember courageous moments. I remember teammates that inspired. I remember plays. And I know we won premierships, and I. For, but for me, it's about striving for the premiership. Mm. Um, I probably remember the year that we failed to make the top four more than I remember yeah. premierships. So I don't know. And I remember leaving West Torrens, like retiring and bringing Anthony Weatherstone mm -hmm. in and your dad, Mel, who was my assistant coach, um, Lindsay, saying, Terry, you know we're leaving when they're ready to win premierships but that wasn't like that's a perfect time to hand yeah yeah you know like i didn't do it for the premierships you do it for building care like when i think why do i coach i don't coach to win softball games i found i'd liked coaching to grow people i wanted the girls that i coached to respect themselves enough because of how hard they worked and what they achieved, that they didn't settle for boyfriends who treated them badly or partners who didn't respect them. Or that's what I love to see. I love to see people have pride in themselves and what they did. That's yeah. I guess why I coached. Hmm. It's a bit of a tangent. No, that's that's awesome because we often talk about this too. That the things that you learn in softball is all they're about life lessons. Yeah, so, that resonates with me. That's a really great thing to hear. Yeah, and when you reflect on your career, and I can honestly say, Terry, that you did those things for me, like as a coach. Like you were one of the first coaches I had that even made me think more about the game even, like not just about hitting a strike or a ball or running the bases or playing first when there's none, on, none, on, none out, all that type of basic stuff. You taught us how to think about the game, how to think about life. Um, yeah, and I still, hearing you talk about all this stuff is still stuff that I as a coach now value and like Karen said we talk about it and we try to instill those things in our players I try to my high school girls team all that type of stuff so thank you it wasn't that. that nice because as I was reflecting I was like well Mel will be the the best litmus test for what I think I tried to achieve because you've had me as a coach for eternity you poor thing mm. no, so. I was very fortunate and I still use Terryisms, I call them today all the time. Oh god, I fear to know what some of those are. My favorite, if you would like to know, my favorite is to play to win, not to play to not lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I see that every time I'm even watching an NFL game or in Major League Baseball, anything, any sport, I'm like they're playing to not to lose, not yeah. to lose. You yeah. know, 
um, yeah, applying to win, it's just a tweak in your mindset and it makes all the difference. It's yeah. very simple. Well, no, it's not simple, but when you recognise it, it is. But And I remember you telling us that quote at Sally Christensen's Backyard Barbecue. I think you might have been coaching us maybe under 17s or maybe it was a grade. I can't remember, but I remember the exact time you told us that quote. But really? Yeah. Sally Christensen's, we had a team barbecue and you pulled out this quote and I'm like, that's magnificent. Like, and whenever I found myself getting negative, I was just like, play to win and just totally changed my headset. Didn't always work, but yeah. <laughs> I think interestingly for me, that came to me because I went through a part in my career in high school where I had the yips. And if you ever have the yips in any sport, you'll know the feeling you can feel it and create it, what it is to not try to fail. Yeah. And if you can create that feeling, and that's what I spent, like the thing that I loved in any of the sports, and I spent a bit of time doing sports psych with the Thunderbirds and Contacts Netball Club because the psych interests me. It's how do you, the power of the mind in affecting you physically. Um, and so I knew what it was like to play to not lose or play to not stuff up or play to not throw it away. Mm. Because if your thought is, please don't hit it to me, please don't throw it away, please don't throw it away, you're going to throw it away. Um, But if you can create that feeling and dismiss it and stop it, and you can do that through practice and create the playing to fire it to first, playing to, you know, drill the throw, playing to win, you you can create that feeling as easily as you can create the other one. You just have to. Takes the fear out of it, less fearful. Yeah, Yeah. that was okay. So when did you start working with the SA Sports Institute? I was working at IPEC in a really mundane, fabulous little job. And I got a call from Rosemary Aidy, who was the president of, at that stage, both the SA Softball Federation and the Australian Softball Federation. And she worked at John Martin's at the time. And she called me and she asked if I would come and meet with her in her office at John Martin's. And I had no idea why. So I've gone into John Martin's and I've sat down with Rosemary in her office as she started to tell me about that um, they were having conversations with the Sport Institute. They had had a senior program at the Institute previously, but she was trying to get the program back up and running, but they would only do it if it was a junior focus. So we probably had about half an hour, 45 minute chat at the end of which she said, so would you like the job? And I was not prepared for that I suppose but anyways I mean who says no to that yeah I thought it, considering I relocated countries and left a family that I adore to come and coach arguably kids that were the same age as my youngest sister I thought oh my god you want me to coach juniors and be a professional coach um so I said yes and she said well I better go and tell my board what I've decided and <laughs> And for anybody that knew Rosemary, she was a a force. Um, And it started from there. And the next thing I know, I was at the Sports Institute. I still remember being shown to my desk by Michael Flynn, who was my manager at the Sports Institute, gave me the basic tour, showed me my desk and said, okay, have a good day. And I still remember sitting at my desk and going, so what's my job? (laughs) What do I, do? I had it, it was really uh, in my career. I remember just sitting there for about half an hour, an hour going because n- nobody had really given me direction other than it's a junior focus. 
Um, we're trying to develop the sport from the bottom up and sitting there for an hour and just going, okay, well, nobody's given me direction. So I guess I just have to try to decide what it is. And that became, we had an under 16 squad and an under 19 squad, I think for the entirety of my five years there. Um, and, you know, at the time, South Australia was getting beaten at nationals. We were finishing low mm. seniors. So I think the intention was let's develop the juniors yeah. to be able to compete at a senior level in the future. So we started with under 16s and under 19s, and we probably had from memory 20 athletes in each squad. Um, and we would train, I still remember we would train, we had six, this was one of my stupidest things, we had six trainings a week, three 6 a.m. trainings, and three after, and three 6 p.m. trainings. Under 16s had a set training that they all had to come to, and under 19s had a set training that they all had to come to, and then they could pick the ones that they wanted. So I had, I had all six trainings, three 6 a.m. trainings, and then I would drive the kids that needed transport. So we would have a breakfast. We had a, like a breakfast club. They would stay. They would shower. They'd have, we'd have breakfast together. And then I'd drive the ones that needed driving to the yeah. schools. I used to drive me to school. And you the sassy bus. <laughs> yep, the sassy bus. We used to drive and do the rounds and then have the three in the evenings. So what years were they? That was from 1990 to 1995. I was the sassy coach and then Bob Henty took over from me. That's right. And then the program finished up, I want to say 96 or 97. So pre-2000. Pre-2000. Yeah. And... I think that for me was when I realized that what I wanted to do was to try to develop young women into strong, confident women. Because, And the moment for me that I remember the most was in 1991, South Australia hosted the Under-19 World Championships. And I was the, I put my hand up to be the liaison officer for the USA team. I thought I'd be the translator for them. <laughs> um, and so I, was, <laughs> yeah. so I was the liaison officer for the USA team and I as you know as it was my job to be a full-time coach I immersed myself in the, the the world championships I wanted to watch how all the teams their everything from their warm-ups their routines how they went about their business and the US driving them around to listen to the girls they talked softball 24 7 when I was with them they talked about how hard Susie so-and-so was hitting in summer ball. They talked about so-and-so's rise ball and how dominant it was. They talked about, they cared about softball. They cared about it. They talked about it. They invested. And I had these under 16 and under 19 athletes that were training their guts out. They were training, you know, three times a week with me. I would imagine twice with their club. They were playing on Saturdays and all of them were in state trainings on Sundays. So basically their lives and they would not talk softball. It wasn't like I tried to talk softball to them and they wouldn't talk about it. If you just observed what they talked about, they didn't talk about it. And several you could tell didn't talk about it because it wasn't cool or it wasn't feminine or it wasn't whatever. 
And I wanted to change that. And I remember the first thing I did was sit down with my squads. And I don't know if you remember this mail, but I, I did an exercise with my squads and asked, I wanted them to write down what it was to be feminine. And they wrote all their words and I had the whiteboard and they gave me everything. And it was everything from lipstick to dresses to whatever. And then I asked them, okay, totally new set of questions. Tell me what it is to be an elite softballer. Tell me what it takes. Give me the attributes. And they gave me words like strong and powerful and committed and all these things. And then I asked, are these two mutually exclusive? And that for me was the moment when I realized that most of my athletes didn't feel that they could be feminine and be a top athlete. And it explains so much because the culture in America, softball, softball is strong and they play year round and they invest and you can be cool to play softball. But I had athletes that were basically sacrificing their lives and we were losing athletes. I was trying to explain why when a softballer peaks at 28 to 32, while we were losing our athletes at 22, 23 years old. And we were losing them because they were getting married and having kids and it's to be expected. There's no path, there was no pathway for them. You know, at least in the US, if you go through college, you're playing till you're 23, 24. And then if you're, you know, cream of the crop, you can play for Team America after that. But I couldn't understand why we were losing players so young. Mm. And it's no wonder their values weren't, they didn't match. Mm. And yeah. so that to me showed me what we were dealing with and what we had to try yeah. to turn around. I, I have to agree. I've never thought about it like that. But I remember being a young player and re I loved softball, always did, but wasn't necessarily proud to tell people because it wasn't a cool sport. Mm. And if anything, it had the perception that it was just a bunch of rough women playing, you know, whatever, and not a very good sport. And, yeah, it was a real dilemma. So I, it's interesting that you should say that you identified it back then because it took me a long time to stand up and go, no, I'm actually really proud of this. It's a fabulous sport. There's amazing people that we've met along the way, and this is what we're doing this. So we can actually share these stories. But, yeah, I just I hope that perception isn't out there anymore. But And for me it was about, you know, if the, if the outcome of that was players decided, you're right, I'm busting a gut for something that I don't even tr intrinsically value. If the outcome of that is they give up softball, well, mm. that's a shame. But I just wanted, for me it was an, I learned at the exact moment of the players how right. they felt about it. It wasn't like... I, I thought it was there, but it was just, and I think one thing that I, I'm very comfortable asking stupid questions. Mel will say that. I'm, I'm very comfortable being stupid. Um, so I, I just want to know, and I just couldn't reconcile it, why they just yeah. didn't seem to care, but I knew they cared. Because mm. when they were with, when they were in the group, they cared. Yeah. And probably the next Probably the, the moment that followed that for me was I coached the under-19s. Oh, no, sorry, when I was in under-16s with Dick. We went to nationals and we lost the game that eliminated us. And within, soon after the handshakes, everyone was laughing and joking. Yeah. And I remember saying to the girls afterwards that 
they had invested so much energy that it shouldn't be that okay Mm -hmm. to lose so quickly. And I coached the under-19s the next year, and I still I can still picture the faces of some of the girls. And when we got eliminated far further into the tournament than we had before, some of them cried for two days, and I was so happy. And that sounds perverse, yeah. but I thought, you have invested and busted a gut. It should really hurt mm. when you lose. And it did, and I was never prouder because I mm. thought, Good, it mattered. Yeah. And that's, I think if you work that hard at something, if it doesn't matter, something's wrong. Mm. So, Terry, are you okay if I ask you some rapid fire questions? Sure. So, I'm going to give you options and you're going to pick which is the best one. Okay. Okay, for you. Molded cleats or metal cleats? Metal cleats. Shorts or pants? Playing pants. Sure, playing shorts <laughs> or playing pants? Shorts. Bench snacks, sweet or savoury? None. We might get to that later. <laughs> Batting gloves, yes or no? Yes. A league of their own or field of dreams? Field of dreams. Team USA or Aussie Spirit? Aussie Spirit. Wow, no hesitation oh, on yeah. any of them. Oh, that's the quickest rapid fire we've ever had. Another question. Who was your favourite teammate of all time? Gosh, that's really hard. I don't think I had a favourite. I certainly enjoyed my times when I was athletic enough to play centre field between sort of Sarah Wolford and Kathy Karagich and referring to ourselves as the Iron Curtain. And we genuinely believed a ball could not get hit between us. That was quite fun. To feel, to feel that good about yeah. ourselves, mm, yeah. and it was mostly because they covered a bucket load of ground. <laughs> good I was teammates. Say, did a boy ever get past them? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was always there. Yours. <laughs> um, uh, who was your toughest opponent? Play, it could be a player or team. TV Torrens Valley. Um, <laughs> Torrens Valley seemed to always be our bogey team when I was coaching. Okay. I don't know why we had that game when we put it down to, I know you will remember, I think you'll remember it now if you were here, when we had, I just put it down to an eclipse. It was like every bad thing that we could possibly do, we did. And I didn't have coaching words to cover it. So we just put it down as an anomaly, like an eclipse, (laughs) and that we would then regroup. Um, In the latter years, Sturt were always, in my early days, it was always Walkerville. David Gooley coaching Walkerville were always our nemesis. We played them in my first grand final when I came out in 1987. They beat us in that grand final. Um, and probably Sturt in later years. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, biggest character you met or played against, coached? Character. Yeah. Right. Oh, I probably can't go past Nat Man in terms of playing with. Nat, Natalie Coolis was one of the funniest, most left-of-center players to play next to and to coach. Um, I think we're going to need a story. Oh, there's so many. There are so, so many. She made me swear for the first time ever as a coach. Um, I lost my mind at her. Um, 
<laughs> that and I have such fond memories. Um, can, can you explain what she did for you to lose your mind? Mm. I can't even recall. I think it was we were trying. We had a team. We took a team to America. So I took a sassy squad to America to train in Southern California and play a bunch of tournaments and do intensive training at one of the universities where we stayed. And Natalie was one of those players. And I mistakenly let them have a party one night. <laughs> and we were leaving said party and I was backing the van out. And Natalie would not cease to speak to the point that I could not concentrate. <laughs> And I can remember asking her to be quiet in very forceful terms, <laughs> which we both will remember. No, she, and I think anyone that played against Natalie um, would say that, you know, she's a bit of a character. Um, De definitely. Hitty Bet from Walkerville. I can remember Hitty belching when she was mm. catching when you'd bat to try to put you off. Nat used to, I think, tell the things that I just remember she used to talk to the the batters when she was catching behind the plate and she would you know either tell them what the pitch was and then if it actually was that pitch she'd say you know i told you it was going to be this <laughs> uh, so she'd talk to them incessantly um she did that once on a fast pitch trip with peter edderbone at the plate and cheryl cameron shook her off and she was like i'll teach you cheryl cameron <laughs> So she said, told Peter, was, like, like Peter needs to know, but told Peter about a change up was coming and Peter sent it over the fence. So good team. And then she told us all that. <laughs> <laughs> I stuck it up, Cheryl. Oh, wow. Good for, thanks, <laughs> Yeah, good on you. <laughs> yes, and, and for everyone listening, they probably have a Natman story, I would imagine. Yes, several. <laughs> How did you celebrate after a grand final? Or a big win. Well, I know that it made us the laughing stock of the softball community. Um, so we weren't renowned to frequent the beer garden after games, but we went to Grandma's Coffee Lounge, which no longer exists. But it was um, Melinda Cure's sister Louise and her husband had a Grandma's Coffee Lounge, and we used to go there and we used to splurge on thick shakes and doorstops. Awesome, good choice. Yeah. We were ridiculed for that, but we didn't care. Yeah. That's good. Be yeah. above it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you were. Going back to the Sassy story that you were sharing earlier, what were some of the outcomes of the Sassy program? I think probably the two main ones. So it, as I said earlier, the goal was to get under 16s and under 19s and to grow our junior program. But anybody that knew anything about what we were facing was we would go to nationals every year and we would get we would face pitchers that we had never seen. South Australia didn't have a history of having huge fastball pitchers. We had an occasional fastball pitcher, uh, fastball, rise ball pitcher. Um, and so we would go away to nationals and we would get pounded. We just couldn't hit the pitching. So at that stage, there was what was called then the Eastern Fast Pitch League. I think that's what it was called. And we weren't part of it. And so all the teams that finished top in the country, Queensland, New South Wales, ACT, Victoria, were part of that league. And I wanted us to get into it so that we could see these pitchers mm. throughout the year and be better prepared to face them at nationals. Um, and probably the second thing, and I'll come back to how they're somewhat related, was we also didn't have the facilities to get repetition of hitting. Like if you talk to, you talk about Peter Edabone or any of the top players in Australia or in the world, and you ask them how many 
pitches they're facing or how many practice swings they're putting in a day, you know, they probably put in four to 500 swings, you know, in a training session, whether that's off a tee, toss drill, off a pitcher. Um, and we weren't getting any of that. And we didn't have batting cages and we didn't have any facilities to face pitches over and over and over again. So getting batting cages at West Beach was something that I felt we needed as well to improve our hitting and be better prepared for nationals. Um, and both of those things, the South Australian Softball Association, so they were an equal partner in the SASE program, the state body, the national party body and the Sports Institute itself. So in putting those proposals to the South Australian Softball Association, they eventually were supportive of both. But their proviso was that they not have to spend any money on either of those things and that they not be involved in the administration of any of those two things. And at the time, I pounced because we were so desperate to get two teams in the National League um, and to have batting cages. So we said yes. In hindsight... I think because the South Australian Softball Association didn't invest in it, and I don't just mean financially, um, but they what, didn't. Why do you think that was? Was it lack of staff, resources, I think time? so. I mean, as you know, I haven't been involved in softball for a number of years, so I don't know what resources they have in place. Um, but at the time, they had a part-time administrator. The end, I want to say. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I Every think. other person involved, and even that was when Rosemary Eighty was the president, mm. was the, the national president as well, were volunteers. Yeah. Um, and they were fantastic, but I understood I was the one paid employee of softball. Mm -hmm. We might have had some people working in the schools program and delivering some schools um, softball, but I was the one paid person. So I can see their point of view. They think, well, we've got a full-time person and she's got some money. She should pay for it and she should do it. Right. Um, I reported to that board every month um, in terms of reporting what I'd been doing and putting ideas forward. But in hindsight, I think because they didn't invest when push came to shove, they didn't value its continuation. So the cages were there for... A number of years, I think, only came down with the recent renovations. So this was around the same time? Yeah, both yep. at the yep. same time. Well, roughly the same time. I can't remember exactly, but I know, I don't think we went into the National League until we had the batting cages. Right. So you said we need batting cages? Yep. And they said, fine, you do it? Yep. Okay, so how did you do it? Um, if anyone's listening from Safe Work SA. <laughs> um, <laughs> so because... They're gone now. The cages they are, gone. are gone. And no now. one was injured in the no. making of it. No, no one was injured. Um... So it was sort of like when I said I showed up on my first day and they said, here's your desk yeah. and here's your, you know, here's where the toilet is. And I had to figure out what my job was. It was similar. They've said yes to cages and how hard can it be to build two batting cages? <laughs> so I don't know how I did it. I looked up things. I remember contacting the cement company and them asking me what type of cement I wanted and I had no idea what they were talking about so I had to decide on the type based on how much drying time and for me to decide that I had to figure out how much time I wanted to stuff it up so that it wouldn't dry with things in the wrong place so for anyone that's seen them I thought they ended up quite quite good batting yeah. cages so it was I, I did yeah. But yeah. it was myself it was Belinda Thomas I was living with the Thomas family at the time um Belinda Thomas her brothers, Jamie and Anthony, and their friend, Matthew Brown. And we were out there at like 
five or six in the morning. We dug the holes. The cement truck arrived. We had the poles there. We each held poles in situ. Um, the framework went up. I'd ordered nets and I'd gone to a number of places to try to figure out indoor netball and cricket places to try to figure out where I'd get netting. I don't remember how we did it, but wow, we did it. Mm, good outcome. Yeah. yeah. For all those years, I never knew that story. Hmm. So I'm, yeah, I'm impressed. I don't yeah. think I even bought breakfast for the Thomas family and Matthew. I probably <laughs> owe them a meal. All of softball probably does. Yes, they were there for some <laughs> yeah. some years. And they were still functional too. Like yeah. At the end, it wasn't like they got pulled down because they were unsafe. No. Or, I mean, the netting probably yeah. had a bit, a bit of holes yeah. in it and stuff. But they weren't pulled down because they weren't functional. It was the bullpen for the Giants games it, it, went out that way. It was the redevelopment. Yeah. And um, now they've got those fantastic sports. indoor yeah, batting indoor cages that are just fantastic. Not quite as good as your batting nets, but mm. Well, okay. they probably had a proper facility. builder. They probably had a proper builder <laughs> to do it. Luxury. I know. Did you have any other paid or volunteer roles in softball? So, let's see. At West Torrens, I have been... Under 15s, under 17s, D grade, A grade coaches. I have been the president of the club. Um, that's probably it for West Torrance. State teams, I've coached under 16s, under 19s, and seniors, and those were what volunteer roles, but lovely. Um, done my share of schools coaching what drove you to volunteer so much i never really looked at it as volunteering it's funny when you think of volunteering i think oh what would i do and i think of your charities i think often sporting volunteers get forgotten because we start doing it because mm. we're passionate i remember when i first got the sassy job i couldn't believe someone paid me to coach um it was like a dream to say i was i never said i was a professional coach but effectively i was a professional coach mm. um i think it's it's like anything, and I it might relate to the story I said about Sasa not valuing the National League and the batting cages. Um, the more you invest, the more you get back. And I always feel I've been blessed that it's the individuals that you work with. And I always feel that whatever I put in, I got back at least twofold in terms of the joy it brought me mm. or the growth. or So I never really felt like... Aside from my beginning when I said, oh, my God, they want me to coach. How many hours of my week is that going to take? <laughs> After that brief selfish moment, I've gotten back twice as much as I've put in and never thought of myself as a volunteer. It was just, just hanging out with people I enjoyed and respected and, yep. yeah, got back much more. Yeah, that's nice. And so then do you know or can you think of reasons why you stopped being involved with the sport? I think probably when I left Sassy, so I left to travel in 1995 and I sort of had gotten, so I'd been the Sassy coach for probably five years and I started to get to the point, and again, coming back to there weren't a lot of supports in yep. place. Like if you look at a lot of sports in terms of junior development positions and things like that, I didn't, I felt like I had run out of ideas. I felt like I didn't have anything to offer. And I think when you're coaching or you're in a position where you're leading something, you want to feel that you have something different to offer. Yeah. So I stepped aside and I traveled and Bob Henty stepped in, which is a totally different set of eyes. And Bob and I coached together. And 
I respect him and the way he coaches. So Bob stepped into the role and I thought that's got to be a good thing for people to hear somebody different. I think when I came back and started coaching again at West Torrens, again, so many of my athletes I'd coached forever um, and I wasn't playing anymore. And I think when I stepped away, I don't really know what made me step away because as your dad Mel said to me when he was coaching with me, you know that we've got the team now to where they're going to win. Like we've got the team here to win grand finals. And we did, but that's for me, it's not the challenge. You yeah. grow players to get to be the best they can. Yep. And then when they're there, I don't know that I had anything unique to say anymore. The only thing that I ever felt I had at that stage, I would go back tomorrow and coach tactically. I love coaching softball. I feel like a chess player, but I understand, at least I used to understand, how to play within the rules and to play the rules to the best of the ability and to use your assets and to look at your opponents. And because, you know, a softball coach can control so much. Not a lot of coaches can do that. A lot of your top coaches, team sports, field sports, they can't even talk to the athletes during the match, halftime, maybe quarter time. But softball, I can, a coach can control what the pitcher pitches if they want to. If a coach wants to control every pitch and call it from the bench, they can control what your batter does, if they swing, if they don't swing, if they bunt, you can control if your runners run, you can call everything. Um, and it's a lot of power, but it's also a lot of fun because you're working with your players yeah. and, and they're working hard to be the sorts of players that you use as yeah, assets, I suppose. Hmm. So I'd go back tomorrow and coach. I think I don't know that I had anything new to say. And now I've been gone so long, I don't think I know the game well enough to go back and do that. Have you been keeping in touch like with college ball or watching the Spacequake broadcasts or anything like that? I watch the college ball in yeah. the US. I watch, I saw you play on Wednesday mm, night. That was good. Yeah. yeah. Saw me make an error at left field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would have scored anyways. Yeah, um, no, true. I was That's awesome. I was just so I was remarking. I said to, to Sharon, "Oh my God, Karen has still got it. I can't believe you still play like you're a young little thing." Um, so I love watching, and I've watched a few grand finals on right. TV. Yep. Um, yep. So I still I I love the sport. Yep. Do you find it hard to watch it? No. Right. I'm the same. I, I enjoy it now. I used to find it very hard to watch softball, and I don't know why, and I don't know what changed. But I'm always intrigued as to whether. You can or not, because some people just say, no, I can't watch it. And I think when I probably first left the sport, I found it harder. Yeah. Because I yeah. I knew the personalities and I knew what I was missing in terms of yeah. the social side. Yeah. Whereas now I can watch Australia play and I don't know a single one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know them and I can just analytically analyze it. And I love baseball. So... Um, for those listening, we're watching, we're viewing this right now on game one of the World Series. I know Mel hasn't watched game one, so I won't talk about today's outcome. I was outcome. just about to say who won. But my, I Los, heard but my Los Angeles Dodgers are in the World Series and it was an exciting journey. And I still love watching There's, you know, I love um, watching baseball and swings and fielding mm. and picking it up because it's the same. Did you, as a coach, did you have a particular forte that you were especially good at improving batting or backhand or teaching strategy or or just an all-round ability? I would say that I've always felt like a bit of a fraud in – so 
I worked with pitchers and I can't pitch to save myself. Right. Um, but my defense is I studied biomechanics at university. And so I understand how levers work and biomechanics works. And I had, I was very open in not knowing. So with pitchers, I would say, we're going to work on this pitch. This is what it needs to look like out of your mm -hmm. hand, but you need to tell me how you're going to make that happen. Yeah. And I can see it. So I, I, I felt like a bit of a fraud, but I felt I knew what I was talking about. I wouldn't have known what I was talking about at an, you know, an Australian level. Yep. Um, I'd say I really liked working with outfielders. I felt like I had something to offer in terms of outfielders range mm -hmm. and improving range and their confidence to broaden the way they move for the yep. ball. Yep. When I, I think when I first came out, I was very critical that a lot of outfielders played deep because they had no confidence going back. Yep. Um, so I wanted to challenge my outfielders to play in and increase their range back. We um, still run a drill that we call dolphins that you used to run when you'd send us back in one direction and the other like a dolphin trainer. And this is a podcast, so no one can see what I'm doing, but I'm <laughs> pointing in a direction and yeah. then the other like a dolphin would do. And we still run that and call it dolphins because you taught us that. And I wish I'd given it a name. Yeah. <laughs> dolphins it is. <laughs> And even like I can remember, um, and for those listening, Kirsty Tannebring was the first baseman that came up for West Torrens, and she was probably 17 at the time. And for those that know, she has long limbs and was still getting used to her limbs. So I wanted her to be an outfielder. I knew that she would be a first baseman, but she didn't have the movement to have range as a first baseman. And I knew that if she spent time in the outfield, she would have to learn that range. And so I remember okay. putting her in the outfield to teach her the range that ultimately hopefully would improve her as a first baseman. Well, that's interesting. Mm. So a strategy to bring her back in. Yeah. yeah okay. But so I think, I, I think I had, I could still take some outfield sessions and mm -hmm. feel competent at taking outfielders. Um, I always felt like a bit of a fraud at batting. I think I just did it intuitively. I don't think I had sound batting coaching mm. wisdom. Um, that said, I'd apply whatever I had and hopefully I could teach good hitting. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't say, oh, here's an expert batting coach. Well, a lot um, of it's between the ears, isn't it? It is. And and I think you had a good ability of making, making people think for themselves what you're just saying about the pitches. This is the spin I need and work out how it's done. As a player, you challenged me a lot in that sense. I, I was never allowed to play anywhere but catcher and you put me in the outfield. And it actually gave me a lot of confidence because I was terrible. But you invested in me and I suddenly thought maybe I can play somewhere else. And I had to think about things on my own two feet. So I, I think that's a great superpower oh, yeah, as a coach. Yeah. And feeling like a fraud with everything else I think is so very human. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that's a great insight. That's um hmm. Wonderful. Well, I, I liked the mental side of the game. I think mm. early on here, I had, you know, you learn from every coach that you work with or against, and I learned certain things that I didn't want to do. And those were the coaches that would hit a ball and tell the players where to throw it. And so I wanted to be a coach that would tell you where the what the situation was, have the team react, and then question why they did that. Because it's yep. not, there's no right or wrong. They're, they're, visualizing invisible runners on first and second and making a decision that I felt the runner would be going home. So I threw it home. Mm -hmm. If that's the reason they threw it home. Yep. Perfect. Yep. Um, and 
as a coach in softball, while I said we can control everything, I can't control how someone responds to a ball hit to them yeah. and what they do with it. Um, I, I was very blessed in my early career. I had a coach in year 10, and I think I said previously that we were city champs my first two years of high school. Um, she would make us post-game the next day, come to training, and if we made mental errors, we had to bring her roses. Roses were her favorite thing. We had to bring a rose for every mental error we made. And you can imagine only we would know if it was mental. I can throw a ball away. And I can throw it away because it slipped out of my hand or I can throw it away because I thought that I hope I don't throw it away. And so she, she taught us that our honesty, we had to say when I made that error, if we said it was physical, she'd go, yep, you know, no harm. No, I don't need a rose for that. But if it was mental. And so I always loved working with the mental side of things. Um, and one of my career highlights would be coaching the under 19 teams in nationals 19 team in nationals uh in queensland and we went away with two pitchers is it all right if i digress yes please um we went away with two pitchers rachel robertson and leanne oh my gosh what's leanne's surname wolford thank you leanne wolford um, we only had two pitches and, you know, going to nationals, especially in Queensland, when it's hot, you usually go with three or four pitchers. We had two and a week or two before going to nationals, Leanne got the yips and could not throw. She was pitching for Torrens Valley and she could not throw with runners in scoring position. And it was clear she could not throw with runners in scoring position. Um, that was in club level and we were about to go away to state. And I got Leanne and worked with the sports psychologist at Sassy. And I can remember sitting down with her and asking her. So for those listening, Leanne was six foot two, the perfect build you'd want for a pitcher. She had long levers and a ton of natural ability. And sitting down with her and asking her what an intimidating or dominating pitcher looked like. And she said, I, I don't know. And she seriously did not know. And I said, well, I'll tell you what a dominating, intimidating pitcher looks like. They stand tall, they stare you down, they control the situation. They tell you when you step in the box and you control the batter. That's what they look like. And I said, so are you happy for us to create that in you? And so she said, yep. And then we talked through what she was thinking about. So when you've got runners on second or second and third and um, you'd have the ball in the mound, what are you thinking? And she'd say, I hope I don't throw it away. Hmm. And again, to have these, like I've got goosebumps now because hmm. to have those conversations, you have to have the trust of an athlete to just honestly tell you what they're feeling. And I'd say, okay, but we can change that. And so we worked with a sports psychologist and we worked on two things. We worked on creating her into a tall, intimidating, dominating pitcher. And I'm talking, you wouldn't think it would be this hard, but I would literally make her step on the mound and because she used to slouch and lean over, but to stand tall and to look like she wanted to dominate the batter. And at the same time, we would get her to pitch and I'd get her to create the feeling. So she would get on the mound and create the feeling. I got there's runners on second and third and there's no outs. What are you thinking? And she'd tell me. And I'd say, okay, when you throw the ball and you get it back from the catcher, you cannot turn around until you feel dominant. And so you have to get rid of any negativity. So we worked on stopping her negative thinking. And that's a practice skill. So for anyone that is go th going through yips of any description, 
it's about thought stopping. It's about recognizing that I'm thinking negative thoughts. You literally say stop and you replace it with a positive thought. And so with Leanne, it was good because we were replacing it with strong, dominant, and she would help come up with the words that worked for her. Um, and so we go up to nationals, and I remember saying to Rachel Robertson, be prepared to pitch every game. Leanne still could not pitch with runners in scoring position. And we were working extra every day on her. And so you can imagine for those listening, and I can't remember what it is now, but at the time, pitcher has to pitch every 20 seconds. I think they have 20 mm. seconds. So when I started with Leanne saying you cannot turn around until you have a positive thought, sometimes she would turn around and I could tell she didn't even look remotely dominant and there was a lot of negativity and I'd say, do you feel dominant? And she'd turn back around and it would take a minute or a minute and a half for her to turn around and feel dominant. And it was a slow process and I would challenge, are you dominant? And if she wasn't, she turned back around and if she was... And just before we went to nationals, the senior team was playing the under-19 team, and I happened to be in the senior team at the time. And I went into the batter's box, and she was on the mound, and I was never so proud that she tried to dominate me. And I thought, oh, no, you will not dominate. I will control when you pitch to me, and I will get in the box when I want. And it was fabulous because I played it like, no, no, I will dominate. And she played it perfectly. Wow. Anyways, we went to nationals. She still couldn't throw with runners in scoring position. And we kept working on it. And long story short, we ended up playing an elimination game against Queensland, the home state. Um, Alan McAuliffe was the umpire in chief. And um, Leanne started the game. And in the seventh, we went extra innings. She pitched with the bases loaded and no outs in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings and got out of it all three times. And we scored in the top of the ninth and and then held them and we won. And it wasn't the winning. It was one of my proudest. I'm even getting choked up mm. thinking about it. It was the the bravest, strongest, most incredible performance I've ever seen from a human being in terms of just overcoming her demons. And we literally intentionally walked the bases loaded because they had second and third no outs, two of those three innings, wow. and intentionally walked the bases loaded and she came back every time. It was phenomenal. I love the mental side. And you can't do yeah. that if you don't have trust, if people won't share with you how they're genuinely feeling. Um, and that led me to, because I was a coach at the Institute and Margangop was the netball coach at the time. So then I started doing some work with, at the time, Contacts and then Thunderbirds. And again, when you talk about no credibility, I come from America, we don't even play netball. But I loved, <laughs> I could understand I can't shoot a netball to save myself yep. but I liked working yep. and goal shooters in netball is similar to pitchers they have the most stress and the most time to think about the million ways that they can miss a shot and so I love working in any sport on the mental side hmm. sorry that was a bit of a digression that was a good story no, I'm so glad you digressed because we wouldn't have yeah. heard that story otherwise <laughs> Who has been the most influential person or people in your softball career and why? Um, I think for opportunities, Nancy Whittingham, who was the national coach at the time when Janet and I first wanted to come out here. She was the national coach and happened to be the A-grade coach at West Torrance. Rosemary Aidy for giving me the opportunity to coach professionally at the Sports Institute. Dick Coombe, I think, for giving me the chance I wanted to coach state but didn't have the experience. So I think I worked as Dick's assistant for two, if not three years in under-16s and 19s. And I learned so much from Dick in terms of his approach and 
coaching and how what what happens at nationals because I'd never seen it before. Um, and I think the West Torrens Softball Club, all of its members from arriving and being welcomed at the airport with the barbecue from that first day through to my last, the members of the club, players, coaches, committee have just welcomed me. Um, and so in terms of opportunities, those. In terms of influencing my approach and my coaching style, um, my coach at Cal State Northridge, Gary Torgerson, who I mentioned, um, his methodical nature influenced my approach to trainings and games. Um, a gentleman by the name of Bob Harrow, and I don't know if you guys remember Bob Harrow, but he yep. coached the women's ACT, a gentleman from Canada, and a nicer, more giving coach you would not meet. I remember watching the year I coached under-19s in Sydney and Bob was coaching the ACT women's, and it happened to be in Sydney at the same time, and I got to watch him coach, and I had never been so excited to watch a game. He He played offense and made... So ACT at the time were probably, you know, the powerhouses were Queensland, New South Wales. But Bob Harrow came on the scene and he coached aggressively and he stole bases and he did things that people didn't take those risks. And I remember sitting there and going, I want to be that coach. And I think from watching Bob from that moment, I can remember where I was sitting, third base side, and they did a double steal, second and third, and caught New South Wales by surprise. And... If I remember correctly, they threw it away and the ACT scored and I thought, I want to coach like that. And I think from that moment on, I never wanted to go home wondering at the end of a game. I always wanted to go, what would have happened if we sent that runner or what would have happened if I thought the shortstop was deep and we could score third on a fake bunt or... So yeah, that definitely influenced. And probably lastly, I think um, for some players, I was probably a good coach, but for a lot of players, I probably didn't have a a good impact on and it comes down to coaching style. So I think for every player, every player that I coached had an impact on me. Um, I could tell you half a dozen players that I actually said to my assistant coach, I should have nothing to do with them because I only make them worse. For whatever reason, their way of absorbing and my way of coaching mm -hmm. didn't match. Um, but I think, so every player had an, an, an impact on my approach and how I coached. I learned from every player what didn't didn't work. And sometimes I learned from one athlete what would work for another athlete with similar style or whatever. So yeah, to all the athletes I've coached, they've had a huge impact on. And me. so moving on from the people who had an impact on you, who well, what was your proudest softball moment, whether it be as a player or a coach? Yeah, when you look back and reflect, what are yeah. you most proud of? As a of a player or of just in general, Anything. however you want to interpret it. I think the Leanne story is one that I'm exceptionally proud about. Um, I think the other person that I haven't mentioned that was influential was Alan McAuliffe, and so um, Alan was a top umpire in South Australia at the time that I came out. He was the the creme de la creme of umpiring. He went on to umpire at Olympics, and like I said, he was the umpire in chief at the nationals that year. And I can remember Alan coming up to me after that game with Leanne and saying that's the best game of softball I've ever seen. seen. And he'd been to Olympics at that stage. And I remember thinking, wow. Um, I think I've been just as proud of the players that, if not more so, of the players that didn't have the natural ability but got the most out of it. And I'm only partially part of that because 
those athletes generally have big hearts, you know, like they aren't the most natural, but they just work their guts out. Julie Dixon is one that comes to mind. Julie Dixon playing A grade regularly and just playing fantastic was a huge highlight. Um, Kathy, the person I mentioned earlier that came to D grade because she read a book and caught her first fly ball, the game just before Christmas, and it was like Christmas had come. Um, so I think it's when someone works really hard for something and they achieve it, that makes me, yeah, whatever mm. part I played in that, I feel proud of that, and I yeah. feel proud that they've achieved it. Um, I don't know, does that answer your question? Yeah. Perfectly. The focus of our podcast is on the SA Softball community. So if we could sort of finish with the question about what did you or do you admire about the SA Softball community, whether it was when you're involved, whether it's now or... Yep. Yeah. Um, for me, I sit here 33 years and a few days from arriving and I'm here literally because the softball community embraced me. Sometimes it was to barrack against me or cheer loudly in the beer garden if I struck out, but it was always, it was always done as just part of, you know, good sport. You know, like I get just as excited if someone booed me from the beer garden as I would if someone celebrated something that I did. So I think, um, the softball community in South Australia, I think is, um, and I think because a lot of the players now mingle between, they play together and now the stars and, you know, what started as the National League. Um, so I think the players get to know each other. And so while you have the intense rivalry, there's still that respect that you get from playing beside them or um, going away with them to nationals or seeing how hard they work. There seems to be a tremendous support network. I mean, I think I talked earlier about I grew up with a safety net underneath me that allowed me to think I could do anything and I'd be safe. And I think the softball community in South Australia helps create that for people that might not have that from their family upbringing or whatever. So yeah. it's a nice little safety net. That was the final question regarding the softball side of things. What outside of softball, what are you up to now? Just for the, the all the listeners out there who are like, what's Terry Lamoureux up to these days? Can you give us an update? Yep. So a quick journey. So when I finished softball, I found myself still back working at the Office of Recreation and Sport where Sassy was in a range of sport policy, sport facilities, looked after things like boxing and martial arts legislation and a myriad of other looked after state physical activity unit. And then I found myself because of the physical activity role working in public health. And I didn't really know that I worked in public health, but prevention. And so all these years later, after working in public health um, and health promotion and prevention programs, I find myself as a success coach at Torrens University, um, which for me was like a gift. Um, it combined my love of coaching um, with, I work in with students in the schools of public health, doing masters of public health, um, diplomas in health and well-being, diploma of sport development, and a bachelor's of community services or social, yeah, bachelor of community service. So it sort of combines both my loves. I get to work with students yeah. and yeah, and it has, I have a lofty title like success coach. Who wouldn't want a success yeah, that's, coach? That's a pretty cool title. Should have given it myself is. that title when I was at West Torrance. <laughs> could have won more. I'd been a success coach. <laughs> 
But that's probably a successful coach. <laughs> sounds like that's all right up your alley, though. Like it sounds like you're living the dream. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when a colleague Terry, I'd go success coach. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm very lucky. I just started, um, and yeah, finding my feet, but mm. looking forward to the challenge. And to wrap up, is there any other words that you would like to say? Any thank yous? Any words about your family support? Anything like that? Um, I think this is fantastic that you girls are doing this. I look forward to listening to the other people you have. I feel very honoured that you've thought I had something interesting to share. Thanks to you girls for inviting me. And uh, I look forward to listening in on the people that you interview from here. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us on our very first podcast. This is very exciting for us. I just really enjoyed hearing you speak. Just the insight that you have and the insight that you have in others, but it's it struck me as the desire for you to help improve others. It wasn't about winning. It wasn't about succeeding. It was about you bringing out the best in others. And I'm not sure enough people focus on that anymore, that it's about the outcome and not the journey. And, yeah, I really enjoyed your stories and just being reminded that it is all about the journey, isn't it? It certainly is. I think reflecting on what you've said too, Terry, I was coached by you quite a bit in my younger days and everything you've said is true. Like, you know, some people can talk a big game, and but you're speaking the truth. And I'm amazed at how much terry is in me but so much of it comes out and i don't even realize it like you're, you're sharing all these stories and i'm like oh my god that's where it's from that's where it's from yeah even up to my stalking of celebrities you gave me that gift as well <laughs> thank you i appreciate oh, yeah. that <laughs> i'll admit that we're stalkers it's okay um but yeah uh you may be like not just the softballer i was <laughs> i'm gonna talk in the past but the human like the professional i am at work uh, and that was you and a lot of people at the Western Softball Club and in the, within the softball community. So thank you for sharing your stories. Like Karen said, we're really excited and you were at the top of our list. Yep. Um, thanks for sharing and spending your time with us and hopefully you enjoy what we edit. <laughs> <laughs> we won't edit a thing. No. <laughs> thanks, thanks, girls. That means a lot to me from both of you. So thank you. Thanks for listening to All Stripes, No Balls, stories of the softball sisterhood. We're Thunder and Fisty and we love softball. softball.